This is The Guru, live at 195 Piccadilly. One of our most anticipated sessions this year was on virtual reality. With the technology now in consumers' hands for the first time, many games developers are looking to make the first breakout hit. Virtual reality developer Dr Dave Ranyard and Katie Good, the creative director of Triangular Pixels, are here to tell us about the future of both augmented and virtual reality. Okay, so we've got an hour now about virtual reality. So there's me talking a bit high level, and then John and Katie are going to talk a bit more from grassroots of Cornwall, where they live. So that's my mum. (laughs) And uh, about two and a bit years ago at PlayStation, we announced we were doing VR at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. And just afterwards, uh, she rang me up and said, actually, I'd really like to try that. You know, can I have a go? And I've made loads of games, and I'll show you some of them in a minute. Um, but she's never asked that about any of the other games. <laughs> but the interesting thing for me was that experience. So um, I've got a couple of other family members here, Eddie and Alice, two of my children. Uh, yeah. Eddie was in the room as well. So we had the youngest and oldest, like Morpheus, as it was called, uh, players at the time. But also I learned a lot. So one, you know, it was an amazing experience that my mum, who's in her 70s, could have. It was a very social experience. So it wasn't like she went into a dark room, did that experience, came out, didn't talk about it. She wanted to share the experience at the time as it was happening and afterwards, and that perhaps dispels some of the myths around virtual reality, that it might be a bit of a solitary experience. Uh, and just the fact that we could get that, get that emotion out of her, it wasn't like an, a traditional flat screen video game where you need to know all the controls or anything like that. It was really an experience. So that, at that point, I, really, I was really interested in working in VR up till then. But we just announced it, and that was, that was pretty good. And then to see my mum have that experience with it, it really validated for me the work we'd been doing. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of background, because I guess it, it's probably interesting to understand how people have got to different places in their careers. So um, I was at Sony for 17 years. I started out as an engineer um, doing the menus on a football game and then worked my way through various different jobs there. The last three and a half years, I was running the studio in London, which is just down on Great Marlborough Street in Soho. There's about 120 people. Actually, Katie and John have both worked there in their time on different projects. Uh, and then in January, I d- decided to make the bold slash foolish step of becoming independent, which, oh, to be honest, I'm loving it, but I have to keep remembering I've got to go out and earn some money as well to feed these guys. Um, so, you know, it was a long time to be at one place. I love Sony, actually, but I decided to make this step, and now I'm working through how that's going to work, which is, which is good. VR's very exciting, so it's, it's sort of working. So prior to that, I actually did a computer science degree. Uh, so I was an engineer, knew how to program computers. I did a PhD in artificial intelligence, which was, it was actually quite stats-based, but again, it was like coding, basically. I was a research fellow at Leeds Uni, and I was also a musician, and that's, I'm the one on the... The, the ugly one on the left. Um, and because of that bit, I also did this thing called Creative Services inside Sony, which was the audio department and music. So not just me writing music, but hiring external musicians. Uh, we had this game, SingStar, which needed thousands of songs licensing for it, so we set up a licensing department. Um, we did identity and branding. We did uh, video services. And I did that for about four years, and then I decided to move back onto the gaming like project side and then I was like as executive producer of SingStar and then Wonderbook and then the studio head so that was kind of an interesting route to that point having started out as a coder to then do some sort of music stuff and then be a producer and then be a studio head so I think it's that's interesting because you know when you get to how do you become studio head of a studio where you can either set up your own or you can learn how to make games in one of the fields you know coding or production or whatever so I think that's Interesting. Okay, here's some of the games that we made. So Oscar mentioned a couple of these. So The Getaway, which was on PlayStation 2, uh, first game to have no on-screen display, and you could drive around the whole of London without any loading screens, which at the time was huge. Back then, you'd play a video game, you'd get to a a spot, and then it would stop loading, (coughs) and then go on. So, you know, spoils the experience. The, The idea of driving around the whole of London was... Fantastic. And a, a very compelling sort of gritty narrative as well. Um, but uh, other things like iToy Play, so that was the first game that used a camera. You waved at the camera. Um, SingStar, a singing game, dancing game. Uh, Book of Spells we did with J.K. Rowling, so that was an augmented reality book. And here's some of these things. So what's interesting, this was in 2003. It was a simple camera plugged into the USB port. 
of a PS2. And you could see yourself on screen, and then it was just looking for basic motion that you could interact. And we realized that was kind of the beginning of this thing called couch social gaming, where it was as fun to watch somebody play that as it was to play it yourself. Similarly with SingStar, you know, just having your mates around and singing, it's a lot of fun. This is a move controller, uh, and that's a dancing game. So you held that, and you could track dancing. Um, and that's Wonderbook, where it's got all these weird blue markers on it, and you show it to the camera, and then you can put whatever you want on the book, so as you see it on the camera feed. But the point with all these, these are all very innovative, and there's, they're very different to, to, to traditional games. So for example, there's no navigation in them. You're not trying to get from A to B. Uh, you've got voice as input, camera as input, motion as input, weird square blobs as input. So again, very different inputs. And all that adds up to this, so, which is Eddie over there, actually. So the, the blue lights on his head are tracked by the camera. The move controllers are tracked by the camera. It has a microphone on it, and so on. So all those things that we worked on as a studio, like individual kind of experiences, are actually stepping stones to getting all this right. Um, so it's not just like we switched to making VR because we thought that was fun. We'd actually got a lot of like, tech and understanding. Uh, and even on the creative side, there's some big differences. So for example, in a lot of these games, you're, the player is in the game. You're not controlling another character. Um, so whether that's narrative or singing or whatever, it's a different mindset in terms of making a, an experience. So about three and a half years ago now, we decided to, to get involved in VR when I was at Sony. And this is some of the experiences that we made. And we, we put them out there as Sony was uh, making various announcements about when, where, what with the, their hardware. But you've seen the shark video. This other one, the London Heist. A homage to the getaway, actually. Um, but very interesting. This is Mickey, who you are doing a heist with. And he's also torturing you with that lovely blowtorch. Um, and we also did this VR luge, where you kind of lie down on a giant skateboard and weave in and out of traffic, which is kind of cool as well. So in terms of this, I just want to answer three questions and then maybe throw in a few tips. So what have we learned about virtual reality? What's holding us back? Uh, and where are we going? So what have we learned? Well, first of all, we've learned that actually one-to-one -one inputs really work. So those move controllers give you hands in a virtual world. And these are the ones that come with the Oculus Rift. Whereas using a traditional video game controller is quite abstract to, to the input. So if you've got real hands in there, you really start to believe that you're actually there. Um, the other thing we've learned is navigation is not essential. So in a lot of video games, it's all about getting from A to B. This is a game called Manic Miner that I played as a teenager, or maybe not quite a teenager, where you've got to get from this place to that place via these keys that are dotted around. And it's a really simple objective, getting from A to B. It doesn't need to be translated or anything. But in video games, at the moment, people are using the traditional control mechanisms for navigation, and it, it has some problems. It can cause motion sickness, or it doesn't kind of work properly, you get lost, and so on. But to me, I don't think that everything needs to be navigation. So not every movie is a road movie. If you look at a movie, it's a piece of scene. It's a set of scenes, right, in order. So why can't that be a video game? I think we probably will solve navigation in VR, uh, and people are doing so. But actually, I don't think it's the be-all and end-all. So we're at this time of transition. So the way I think of it is the traditional game controller is the horse, and VR is the car. And uh, you know this is what we're doing at the moment. <coughs> but that will probably take over. OK, so the other thing, and I've sort of touched on this, but the player is part of the experience. You're not controlling a third-person character, or even just watching a character and like, having empathy with them. So what's the player's story? Who are they? Right, so this is Cary Grant in North by Northwest. And he gets embroiled in this like, thriller by mistaken identity. So you know, why have you gone into this experience? Are you you, or are you role-playing a wizard or somebody else like that? And that's sort of from a writing perspective. You have to think this through, because it's, it doesn't it's not the same as traditional games or, or media. We're creating these new worlds. So one of the things we learned as well was just, just being there is kind of fun. So um, we actually made a pub uh, as part of the, the heist. And on the table, we put a cigar, an ashtray, and a lighter. And you can just sit there and smoke a virtual cigar, uh, which, is, which is just fun. And when, when we made the London Heist demo, we took it to GDC and... Um, 
we had like a minute of nothing happening at the beginning. And it's only like a three or four minute demo. Normally, if you're taking a demo to a show, you kind of want to, you know, that's your time to get people's attention. So putting a minute of nothing happening is crazy. But actually, pe people go in there and they just want to get used to where they are, you know? So nobody, nobody batted an eyelid. They totally got it. Um, you need to be consistent in there. So if you've, if you've got a desk with these things on, then, then you really need, if you can pick up the telephone, you need to be able to press the keys on the typewriter or turn the light on or so on. Um, virtual actors are very cool. So the fact that you can be in virtual reality and have somebody actually looking at you, and if you move, their head's tracking you, their eyes are following you. If they're pointing a gun at your head, it's very different to if you're watching two characters on screen with guns pointed at each other. With that, it's like you, the stakes are pretty low. One of them's going to die, but you're not one of them. But if it's you having this gun pointed to your head, then it really feels very threatening, and it's very different. That first person, truly first person experience, people forget that, that they're in VR, really, and they start to you know, really believe where they are. If you don't have input, you can feel a bit like a ghost. So there's quite a lot of 360 video, for example, which is great, and it's, but if, it might be a really exciting place that you're in, but if you have no input on it, it's a bit like being at a party with nobody talking to you. It's just, you just feel a bit crap. You know? So actually, I think even with video, we should try and build in some really simple interaction so you feel empowered in the space that you're in. VR can be social. I kind of touched on this when I was talking about my mum uh, doing the, the, the shark demo. So actually watching people play is a lot of fun, especially you know, if you can do five-minute experiences so it's easy to pass it around. Um, and people, are, you know, it's kind of like doing a roller coaster or something, but you get this exhilarated experience and you want to talk about it and share it with people and so on. Uh, you can do this thing called asymmetric play. So at the moment, I think we're going to have to go a little bit over because we started like that. Um, at the moment, you know, the headsets are quite expensive. So the, the chances of having two headsets in one household, for example, might be somewhat unrealistic. But you could have somebody playing on a headset and somebody else playing on a computer or on an iPad or something. So they're doing different things, but they're in the same world, either compete, competing against each other or collaborating. So that's something that's quite interesting, and it makes it more social and more engaging as well. The simple one is asynchronous play. So something we did with uh, the VR luge, two-minute experience, but with a leaderboard. And then suddenly, you know, a group of 10 people can all get through it in 20 minutes and, and, uh, and compete as to who's, you know, who's, who's the winner. Um, so again, that actually makes it a very social experience. So I'll just take you through a couple of the issues that there are around. So what's sort of holding us back, I guess. So motion sickness. So this was a lot worse a few years ago. If you don't get the computation speed and the speed of getting uh, the graphics back to your eyes quick enough, it can make you feel sick. Right, that's a definite. But there are other things you can do as well. So if you put people in really weird acceleration and so on, then um, that can make you feel sick, just like it would in the real world. If you're in some kind of crazy car that stops starting and moving all over the place, it probably would make you feel a bit ill. But there's certain design things you can do to solve it, but it is a thing that's out there. I think it will get better. Um, some people just get it, but more and more people now are getting used to it and so on. So I don't think it will be a, I don't think it'll be a major issue, he says. Uh, there's no collision. By that, I mean... Uh, you might be in a virtual world that's got a desk in it, but obviously you can't feel the desk. It doesn't exist. So we had a number of, well, most people, probably half the people who did the London heist were holding those move controllers, and at the end of it, there's a desk in front of them, and most, a lot of people would put the move controllers on the desk, and obviously they just fall to the floor. <laughs> <coughs> so there's certain things like that. I mean, you can design it away, like we've learned now, well, don't end a scene with something there, Right? You know, it might be in passing, things could come close to you through the experience, but actually don't sort of give those opportunities to people. Um, but there might be other ways of, uh, you know, but there, there are other times when, they might, when the collision might really spoil the experience for you. Uh, there's a ton of wires with the big headsets at the moment. We just set up our HTC Vive last night, which is amazing, but you've got this huge sort of nest of wires coming out of your head that goes back to the PC and you kind of, you might trip over and... You know, just a two-year-old wandering about while you're in there. It's like, anyway, so there's a lot of wires. So I think tech will improve all this, and we'll get to a wireless solution uh, sometime soon. The ex stuff's expensive at the moment. You know, you, it's like a few hundred pounds plus for the headsets, then a mega PC, or you know, even even with the PlayStation one, where you need a PlayStation and the headset. Uh, you may need quite a bit of space to put it all in. So yeah, we were bumping into the table football yesterday, which is now obviously going on a Gumtree. 
uh, trying VR. So this is what I, people who've never done it before, I think they see it and it looks like this. It's like, oh my God, am I really going to put that thing on my face that's going to take all my senses away? You know, and that, again, with sampling and no, no, try it, sort of things I think it will work. And actually, these guys, John and Katie, did a great job of making it look more appealing by putting cute faces on it and things like that, which I thought was quite nice. Okay, so where are we going? Well, the promise of VR is really about transporting you to another world. Uh, and I do think that that's starting to happen. You know, the people putting the move controls on the desk that wasn't there, they were only doing it for five minutes. It's not like they'd been in there for an hour, but already, they'd, and they were like intelligent people, but already they had forgotten that they were in VR. And that's really the, okay. Um, in terms of input, this is an interesting like model that I remember seeing as a kid, and it's about how sensitive your nerves are, but it's sort of also indicative of how important different input and different manipulation techniques are for us, input to the world, if you like. And I think this shows us that the hands are probably the most important, but also the voice is pretty important, and nobody's touched that. All the headsets have got mics on them, but nobody's touched that at all. So I think using speech will be something that will come next, you know, and I don't think we're that far away from having a conversation with somebody. It might be a bit of a simple conversation, but nevertheless having a conversation with an AI. Uh, in terms of storytelling, how are we going to do that when you're in there? You know, there's this Faustian concept of having a guide to take you through things. I could see that working. Um, or the, but there might be other constructs, uh, constructs that come out uh, soon. And then what's in the emotional toolbox? So at the moment, you know, there's fear that we did with my mum, but I think there's a lot more emotion that we can get out of virtual reality than we have done in traditional games. Uh, in particular, I think social experience, so being in there with a real friend and actually having a mission and accomplishing it, I think will be really important. Um, there's a lot of stuff you can do it online or in the room, so I kind of mentioned that asynchronous play and things like that. So I've got like one minute, so I'm going to do my tips really quickly. So, some tips. It, when I was in that band years ago, this was a sampler. It was an X7000, it had two meg of memory, and it was super constrained. You could play six sounds at once. But we got a record deal with that, so I would say give yourself constraints in whatever you're doing because they can help rather than hinder. It's, it's, it's actually better to constrain yourself and be super clear about what you're going to do. If you're doing VR, this is amazing art, art from Assassin's Creed, but it probably takes an army of artists to make, but you can make very cool VR experiences with much simpler art in a room or something. Do one thing really, really well. That's what the, the smart money is on with VR at the moment because we, don't, we haven't learned the grammar, we haven't learned the, the syntax, so just pick one thing and do it really well. Be nice to people. Be nice to as many people as possible because one day they'll be nice to you. And then I've got, this is the last thing. So this is from Banksy who said, bad artists Im imitate, great artists steal. But he nicks it from these guys, Design Republic, who said, talent borrows, genius steals, shit copies. Uh, and he nicks it from Oscar, they nicked it from Oscar Wilde. Uh, who I think got it from some 17th century composer. So that's it. Okay. Did <laughs> okay. uh, so you know that uh, Katie and Jonathan's come out from Triangle of Pixels? Right, so yes, uh, we're from Triangle of Pixels down in Cornwall. And we've been working on VR for quite some time now. Um, for about, what, two years? Two and a half years or something? Um, we've created quite a few different experiences, uh, for which one now is called Unseen Diplomacy, is available on the Steam VR store, and the other one that we're currently developing is Smash It Plunder. So, John. So, what exactly do you need to get started with VR? Now, we use Unity for most of our projects, um, which has native support for most VR hardware out there. Um, if you're using Unity, the option you're going to be looking for is in the player settings, which is this virtual reality supported tick box. Now what this does is, this means cameras have this new property called the target eye. That means if it's set as a HMD camera, it will automatically have head tracking straight from the device. And it will also do stereo rendering, so a left and a right eye rendered separately. But if you're still doing uh, things like render texture or off-screen effects, then um, if you leave that off, on the camera, then you can, that still works like a normal camera. If you're working with Unreal, then the options you're going to be looking for is in the plugin settings, and then you're going to be enabling the specific plugin for the device that you're going to be targeting. Now, Unreal and Unity handle a lot of the, the, the internals of this yourself. But depending on what hardware you're after, you're going to want to use the various plugins 
to uh, access the full functionality of that hardware. If you're using Google Cardboard, then there is the Cardboard SDK is on GitHub. If you are using the Rift, uh, particularly if you're going to be using the touch controllers, then there is the uh, Oculus Utilities, which is available on the developer website. For the HTC Vive, then there is a Steam VR plugin, which is available on the Unity Asset Store. Um, this gives you access to the controllers and the inputs, but also enables the chaperone. And if you are targeting PSVR, then you need to become a registered PlayStation developer, which you can do at the PlayStation Partners website. And once you've gone through that process and become approved, then you have access to the Unreal and Unity plugins. So when you're actually looking at all these devices, they're so dramatically different to each other. So when you're thinking of your concept, you're going to have to really think about which devices you're going to target and why you're going to target those devices. Um, these are like the five biggest ones that pretty much anyone has, uh, hold on a sec. Um, which everyone has sort of heard about. Um, on the left is Oculus Rift, you've got the HTC Vive and the PSVR, and on the right you've got the mobile phone devices, uh, which is Google Cardboard and Gear VR. Uh, so obviously when you're sort of thinking about coming up the context of your game and like how are you going to get it working on these devices, you have to think about the fact that the ones on the left are wired, the ones on the right are wireless. So are you going to be spinning around in circles? Are you going to expect them to be like, dealing with cables? Are you going to get in and sit down and play? You also want to be thinking about the fact that the ones on the left are being played on a PC or console. So that's got power behind it. The ones on the right on the mobile phone. Not much power, not much grunt. You're going to think about the graphics of your game and how much processing it's going to need. You also want to think about the fact that mobile phones have a limited battery. So you don't want players to be spending the whole of their time in your mobile phone VR game, like playing Skyrim or something, because you're going to get through, what, 10 minutes of Skyrim before the battery dies? So you want to be thinking about the sort of style of games, shorter little arcade-like experiences. And you want to think about player expectations. So play PlayStation and PC, people are expecting sort of bigger, grander experiences, potentially. They're expecting sort of a full game loop, like achievements. But people on Gear VR and Cardboard are looking for mobile phone bite-sized gameplay. And then even within positional tracking, you've got differences. So PlayStation VR very much designed to be played on a sofa, sort of moving around forward and backwards a bit. But that's about it, really. Um, and same as the Oculus Rift at the moment. Um, again, sort of mainly sitting down. But then they are going to be bringing out an extra camera for the Oculus Rift when touch comes out. So suddenly you can now move around. So when you are moving around just with PSVR, you could potentially block the move controllers if you're facing backwards with your own body from the camera. But with two cameras, suddenly you can have one at the front and one at the back, and you can track your hands around. And with uh, laser tracking, which is what the HC Vive does, you've got this full volume of a room that you can use, up to three meters by four meters. Um, it's because the headset itself is tracking lasers rather than the lasers tracking the headset. And then, as Dave said, like, input is so important. But at the moment, some devices only have untracked input, as in the game doesn't know where the controller is in the real world relative to you. So Google Cardboard, it's just a button. That's all you've got to interact with game. Um, Gear VR has a touchpad. And the same with the Oculus Rift, which is that sort of weird remote device. It's sort of a touchpad, too. With touchpads, at least, you can get gestures. Um, so we did quite a lot with uh, Smash It Plunder on Gear with just being able to move people around and being able to interact with objects, but it still very much felt like you weren't really there because ultimately it's where like tracked input really, really works. Uh, so Oculus Rift, PSVR, and uh, HTC Vive all have one controllers where suddenly you'd be able to reach in and grab objects. Even with these, though, there's still differences. Like the Oculus Rift, they have capacitance uh, buttons, which means that you sort of do gestures and hand gestures in it and sort of point and wave. The HTC Vive has a trackpad like the Gear VR. But the wild horse of all of them is actually the PlayStation 4 controller. Like that, you can actually track with the camera still. So you can actually move it inside the virtual world and see it track one to one and still have traditional game controls. So you can imagine how you're going to make a Google Cardboard and a HTC Vive game work on the same title. That might not necessarily work. But you also have to be thinking about where people are going to be playing these games. Some people might be playing on the tube with their Gear VR. 
the expectation of going home and playing on your PSVR device with your friends and family on a sofa. Or maybe just in this massive room with like everybody watching you and like being able to move around this whole space. What are your players expecting from the devices of which they brought? And then even just the, like how the controllers are designed to fit in your hands makes a difference. With the Oculus Rift controllers, they fit around your hands much tighter. So it makes much more sense for them to be hands rendered in the real world, uh, in the virtual world. Uh, but they don't work as well as tools, whereas if you actually make the device a tool uh, with the PlayStation VR and HTC Vive, that feels much better. Um, the, these controllers don't work well as hands. Uh, so in some games, you might expect your virtual hands to be picking up a, uh, a golf club, but then if you're on the HTC Vive and, or the PSVR, then actually the golf club itself is the controller, and you just use your real hands to pick it up instead. So as you can see, there's lots of different input devices. And because of this, it's probably going to be important for you to build in some sort of le level of input abstraction into your game so you can isolate your game code from these devices as much as possible. Um, so definitely, it's something we made the mistake of our first VR game. You need to consider this early and build it around the specific devices that you're intending to target. But at the same time, try and keep other ones in mind for future flexibility. As well as that, if you don't have access to the hardware that you're finally releasing on, then you can still emulate that to a certain extent, because you still have access to all the normal uh, APIs and devices that you have normally. So keyboards still work, mice still work, joypads still work. They're not ideal for use in VR, but you can still use them to prototype your game. So when we started development of Smash It Plunder, we did our original prototypes on the DK1 headset, and just use a wireless mouse uh, as a way to emulate the touchpad of the Gear VR. We also have a mode where you can run the game with just a mouse and keyboard, which plays more like a traditional FPS, which is not something we intend to release, but something we can use and test most of the game without having to use a HDMI device. <coughs> it's particularly helpful if you have contractors or artists who don't have access to hardware. Um, and it's also helpful if you're doing development on the go. So I want to cover a few of the common things that people kind of trip up on when they start doing VR, uh, particularly camera movement. Now, for most devices, you're going to have positional input. So the player's head is physically tracked and output to the camera in your virtual world. That means if you need to set the position of the camera, then the two systems are going to fight, and none is going to have a good time there. So if you want to move the camera, you need to remember to parent it to another object and move that other object around instead. And that means all of the player's head movements will be relative to the object you've parented it to. Rotation is essentially the same thing. And you don't rotate the camera itself. You rotate the parent. But with rotation, rotating a VR camera, it can be uh, very nauseous for a player actually in the headset. So if you're rotating, you either have to consider rotating when you're between scenes, when the player has just faded to black. Or you can do snapped rotation, where you snap at like 15 degree increments. And this is less nauseous, although it is uh, potentially slightly immersion breaking for some players. And then the other one is fading in and out. Again, usual tricks of uh, drawing <coughs> full screen effects doesn't quite work the same for VR cameras. Uh, what we usually do is actually put a big inverted box around the player and then draw that last with no depth testing and use that to fade people to black or whatever color you want. The final thing people usually ask about cameras is how do I turn off positional tracking? Um, the answer to that is you don't because if you turn that off, you're going to break players' expectations and you're probably going to make things more nauseous for everybody involved. So when you actually start making your game environments, we've got some quick tips for you. Um, the first of which is that players have a really keen idea of when scale is wrong. They are really good at it. Uh, we did this at the beginning of Smash It Plunder, where the first time we got to walk through a door in virtual reality, we realized, whoa, it feels like I'm just about to drop off my head. It feels really low. That was just the scale being off. 
So it's something that you can play with. Um, and so in Summer Sandpit, which is a quick jam game we did in the weekend, what we did was actually we made the player purposely a lot smaller and the toys and things, everything a lot, lot bigger um, to make them feel like a toddler again, like a child again. Um, but if it's not your intention to do that, you have to make sure you have some sort of accurate and consistent uh, scales as well. The other thing is that players will look <coughs> everywhere. With this freedom of movement of being able to go around a room and <coughs> just dive in and dip underneath things, they'll be looking underneath your tables. They'll be like checking behind doors, but, like looking on top of things. Now, in a normal uh, FPS or something, normally we just kill off all that geometry to save a bit of frame rate. Now, suddenly you're going to have to Keep, make sure it's there and make sure it looks real and then even potentially start adding things like, oh, hold on, I can put like a secret message underneath this table so if players they can actually get underneath there or like make it part of the gameplay. Um, so that's the idea of Smash It Plunder is that you're literally running around trying to find stuff. It's like suddenly the exploration of VR, it makes it really, really fun. The other thing is players will stick their head into geometry and make it look really ugly like this. Like, you're going to have to think about ways of how to stop the players from necessarily doing that, but not just in terms of making it look ugly. It could be game-breaking for your like, game idea. Imagine you've got a locked room or a locked treasure chest, which the player's not supposed to get into until like, the very end of the game. Suddenly, they could just put their face inside of it. There's nothing stopping them from doing that. So how are you going to make sure they can't do that? You can't just physically stop them, because that can make them feel really quite nauseous and motion sick, because you're messing around with the player's camera. What you're going to have to do is do like, some, some sort of fading, or like fade the whole world away or something. Like, just something to stop them from being able to see all your secrets. The other thing as well is like, when you start moving away from mobile VR and start moving into like, seated, or standing, or room scale, how is your actual level going to change with that? Are you going to allow players to navigate to a new area of the room? Are they going to teleport? Or are you going to bring the whole room in according to their room size and just sort of change where all the props are to try and fit? Of course, the other thing you could do is just have the game just work with one sort of room size. But then you're picking from a small pot of people, or even smaller pot of people that have got your exact same room dimensions. Now, in Steam VR, when a player set up, what they do is actually they mark up their real-world walls inside the virtual world and create virtual walls. And what this makes sure that, that when they're moving around in the game, when they get near a real wall, this virtual wall warns them, and so they don't put their head into it and hurt themselves. But some platforms don't actually have that. So you have to remember as a developer to look after your players and give them ways to be able to mark up their area or show them where the limits of their camera tracking are. Now, this doesn't have to be like a Tron-like grid either. Um, in understanding diplomacy, what we do is actually use the virtual walls of the environment as the real walls that would be in the player's world. But the biggest thing, that most obvious thing for us has been how we have to change UI. Because this just would not work in virtual reality. This is from World of Warcraft. Like, if you try attaching this to the player's face, they're not going to see anything around the edges because like, you try and catch up with it, and it's always on the edge of your vision. Like, having all these icons and text inside the virtual world isn't really going to make much sense. It's going to ruin your game. It's like, oh, the creature seems to have 20,000 numbers written all over him. That's a bit weird. So how are you going to make it all feel contextually within your world? So what we did with Smash It Plunder was that we tried putting just the timer on a wall, on the wall in the dungeon. We thought, oh, it's really big. Everybody will notice it. Uh, turns out people didn't. Uh, they weren't necessarily looking up when they were interacting with all these props. They weren't necessarily even facing that direction. They weren't even necessarily in the same room. So we changed it to the player's hands. So they looked down to check the time on their watch which made really a lot of contextual sense. That's brilliant. That really, really worked for us. Until we needed menus in the game, we needed options, we needed to be able to switch on and off comfort options, or wanted players to have more gameplay information. So then we changed it to a book, which you carry around with you. And this magical book can change pages for which option menu we want, or what gameplay mode you're in. We can change information on it and dynamically change like, timers and things. And this fits in with the virtual world. It's not immersion-breaking. But you don't necessarily need numbers and figures and text still. 
our menu in the Hatton Garden Heist was actually this roll-out toolbar that you carry around with you. And if you want one of the tools, you literally just pick it up out of your tool belt. That was it. That's how you swap tools in the game. So one of the things that VR is very good at is how intimate it can feel and how much a sense of place it can give you. And that means that the the second-to-second interactions between yourself and objects becomes much more important. And we found it's been incredibly useful to spend much more time compared to a normal game on those kind of uh, interactions that they're going to be doing a lot. So this is an example from Unseen Diplomacy where we have these keyboards that you can interact with. Now, the game design only calls you to interact with the keyboard essentially as one big button. Um, we're not asking players to type in information. We're just asking them to basically press any key. Now, when I started implementing this, and I got the model for the keyboard, I found out that some very diligent artists had individually modeled every single key as an individual submesh. So kind of on a whim, I marked this up so that every single key had their own trigger area and their own spring and their own feedback. And it suddenly became very satisfying. You, we combine this with accurate physics on a controller. Um, you can literally put the controller down, and you can see the outline of the controller depressing the keys. Um, and we combine this with visual feedback, like depressed keys light up, um, just audio feedback, and also haptic feedback by making the controllers rumble. And with all of this together, it feels much more believable. And users end up role-playing more when they get in the game. Another example from the scene diplomacy, which is the screwdriver section we have in the game. Here, the player must unscrew the various bolts for the vent before they crawl through it. Um, and what, they have to, what we do with the code is uh, we detect when the tip of the screwdriver is placed into the head of the screw. Now, originally, that was quite forgiving. It was an area about kind of yay big around each screw. And as we went on, we kept reducing this trigger volume to get it smaller and smaller. And every time we made it smaller, the interaction felt more believable and more fun, which is in contrast to a normal 2D, a normal flat game, where you want things to be forgiving so that people don't get frustrated trying to do something simple. But in contrast to that, the rotation is actually much more forgiving. Like we detect you turning the right way to unscrew, but if you screw the wrong way, we basically ignore that. So if your hand's a bit wobbly, particularly when you put it in or out, we discard those inputs and just wait for the correct turn uh, to trigger the screw to unscrew. Um, we had several players that were, when we were playing the game, beforehand they said, oh, wouldn't it be much better to have like a power screwdriver so you can just put it in and, just, and it comes out. And then they play the game and they come to us afterwards and say, no, you're completely right. Having that real screwdriver that behaves like I expected to was much more satisfying. And then hinged objects, uh, which are always interesting in any physics engine. Um, in this, this is from Smash Thunder, and you can see the debug visualization I wrote to show the axis and the uh, constraints applied to it. For, for hinged objects and also sliding objects like drawers, they have a single uh, a single axis they're allowed to move on, either a rotation or a translational. Now, when you grab these, what we do is we take your hand position at the moment of the grab, and we project that onto the axis that the piece moves along. Now, we don't ever show the user this position. It's just an internal state. But as they move their hand in and out or around, we keep projecting onto that constrained position, and we use the difference in that to move the object, which means that when you pull out a drawer, it feels nice and solid and only moves in the way that it should do. And then finally, uh, another example from Smash and Plunder. Smashing is really intrinsic to this game. Like People have to have fun smashing things. And it's also important for the believability of the world. If people can't pick up an object, it feels fake. If they can pick it up and then drop a glass and it doesn't shatter like they expected to, it feels even more fake. So when we smash objects, we have like four different systems going on, which we layer up to make a more believable smash. We have the can VFX. We have the loot that spawns. And when loot spawns, 
we correctly resolve the angular velocity and linear velocity of the original object to create the correct scatter for the loot. Um, not shown here, we also have a voxel debris system, uh, which is specifically optimized for a large amount of small cubes. And then also certain objects may spawn sub-prefabs or sub-objects, so that when an object like a crate shatters, it can leave behind smaller bits like planks, which will also have all of this behavior tied into when they smash. It's also not just in the actual spawn point, it's also this whole volume that gets smashed, and all these particles are coming from different parts of this volume rather than just one point, what you would do from the traditional game. Dave mentioned this slightly earlier on, which is we're right at the early days of this stuff. There is no market, there is no audience, there's no one got any, maybe some people in China, but not a few gear VRs. Are we just too early? I mean, why, why do this now? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and that's been asked of me a few times. Uh, for me, so we've done a number of different things in the past, and you know, motion gaming, and it's done okay, and then kind of petered out. And people say, oh, is VR going to be the, that? But when you have a great VR experience, it's a huge step change in what you actually get as a person. You know, so compared to, say, 3D TV, which is okay, you know, oh, yeah, this is quite good play a VR game, it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. I remember showing the heist to, to sceptical journalists uh, who were saying, well, what's this going to be? And both, like, coming out, two of them, when we very first showed, like, oh my God, that was amazing, I'm a convert. Uh, and for me, it's the laughter your mum has. Yes. Yeah. I remember you showing me that a long time yeah, ago. Yeah. And it's, it's really indicative. And also, I think something so, you said earlier with this, um, uh, people putting their faces into 3D models, that I, I played the Portal demo, and I... I was actually warned about it, but when the robot comes in, you instinctively take a step back. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, when we have, we actually play on people's expectations of the real world in unseen diplomacy. For example, we have areas we have to crawl through really tight spaces, and realistically, they could just stand up and walk around, but they don't. Everyone gets on the floor, and they crawl through, and it's like, oh, it's really tight in here, and sort of squishing their way through, even though there's no real walls in their way. Uh, there's a high ledge as well. I mean, you, you were talking about pushing the high ledge out and things. Yeah, so we have a, a scene where we put you onto a high ledge around the outside of a building, and we made it, and the, the ledge was, you know, it was about yay wide, and the, it was about two stories high. And we tested it, and it's like, the ledge can go thinner. And we made it thinner. And it was, and we, we did this about three times, and every time we made the ledge thinner and the height higher, it became more intense, and, but also somehow more believable and more intimidating, not more intimidating, but more exhilarating. With, um, with the market, though, uh, I feel like it did such a point, but as an indie, it's been amazing for us because, like, we've managed to make a name for ourselves. There is no chance, like, we could have done that on a mobile phone market. Like, it's so ridiculously big. But on VR, it, like, it's so young still that anyone can make a difference, anyone in their bedroom. And we've seen people do that. Like, new companies, so many new companies, and my friends all started to do really well for themselves. Um, only this month we started paying ourselves full time for the first time out of sales that we've managed to get from our VR game, and which is already turning a profit. It turned a profit on its first day. That's just on Steam VR. Wow. So like we're do, we're really happy with the market of where it is now. Whether or not it's big enough for AAA 120 team like person team, that's a different thing. But for indies, like it's an amazing opportunity. And even if it's just to make a bit of a name for yourself so you can get some investment or some publishing. It's worth it. And there does seem to be quite a few people investing and think, you know, challenge like, I think it's a global VR challenge that like, gives away like 35K to a game. I mean, are these things, I mean, they seem to me like they're essential and, and, and is providing that kind of initial starting point is kind of the thing that's going to make that possible for the bigger companies to pay serious attention. Is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, Oculus themselves, they actually do uh, competitions quite a lot. Like, they've done two now. Uh, we won one of them, the Mobile VR Jam last year, um, which, you know, gives you, what, $10,000 or something, which is enough to pay you for a bit. I mean, kept us going for a while. That's a uh, <laughs> yeah, like, but then there's the, uh, I mean, HTC Vive, um, HTC even just announced Vivex as well, which is an accelerator program, which is something different entirely. This is not a competition. This is how to build your business, and they're going to help you support and grow your business. 
which are, there's a lot of bedroom developers, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that can be flexible and creative and do these crazy things. But it's nice to see that they've started to turn their attention away from just giving you money to actually supporting you as a business. I think that's a massively important thing. Feel free to put your hands up at any point, by the way. There's a question over here. Oh, so we've got a... Hi, Dave. I'm going to poke this one at you <laughs> just because you're my victim today. Um, this, this has been great and it's been really informative, but it's been very games-focused. And since we're in uh, BAFTA, the home of film, uh, my question is, what do you see as being the future for live-action film and 360 film and this kind of progression into more true VR kind of immersive movies, if you like. Um, we haven't coined a phrase for it yet, but it's going to get there eventually. But I'm interested to hear more of your thoughts in terms of other application for VR rather than just game entertainment because I know that it's been really focused on game. So I think, uh, first of all, there are loads of applications for VR, and this is what I think is really interesting. So it's not just, not just entertainment. So if we put film and games together, that would be entertainment. There's actually there's health, there's communication, um, there's productivity, there's... Uh, training. Yeah, training. All these things. Uh, you know, if you think of, look at the internet, right? The internet was actually quite heavily pushed from a gaming side in terms of getting handshaking, all these things that needed to work. And then it, it spread out to impact our lives in, in more traditional areas. And I think the same will happen with VR. But then in terms of games and film, I mean, I, I certainly feel that there's a convergence. So the, the video of my mum doing the shark is actually not very interactive. That game, it, you could almost have done it with, with footage, you know, because it, she would have had a similar experience. It is a little bit interactive because it's, it, in, earlier in that demo, if you look at a turtle, it will swim towards you. Or if you look at some, a, shoal, a school of fish, they'll, they'll do something. So it does have little points like that. But, it, but essentially that moment when she gets attacked could have been live action. Um, and I think there's a sliding scale. But the thing I'm particularly interested in is live action uh, 360 virtual reality that's interactive. Um, and the thing I've said a few times now, the, one of the uh, games BAFTA winners this year was Her Story, which is actually a vi real video-based video game, which is almost unheard of. It's a search engine things. game, basically. It's basically a search <laughs> engine game, yeah. Uh, but if you look at that sort of interactivity and then apply it, to VR, I think that could be really compelling. I mean, there are some artists who've experimented, aren't there, with Bjork's that yeah. famously done it. It's got a 360 kind of environment where you're basically watching a single, basically looking at Iceland. Um, I mean, it's not particularly interesting. That I mean, it was okay, but it's not that gripping, I don't think. But I think as an idea, the possibilities of VR. Do you guys have any particular view on film? So the interesting thing with film is, compared to games, if you're doing a VR game, the barrier entry is quite low. Mm. You've got Unity and Unreal, which can both be quite Unity, free. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good plug. Um, the headsets, once you've got one of those, you just need one of those and you start making content. You have all of the game tools traditionally available to make you do that. If you want to make 360 video, the rigs right now are stupidly expensive. Like Google have a rig that requires 24 GoPros in a circle. And that still doesn't get you through like complete surround because there's big black spots above and below. And then they need to take that and sit that processing on their Google servers for days to get all of the video stitched so you don't get artifacts. And it's still a little bit lower resolution because decoding all of that at a high resolution is hard work. So at the moment, the barrier to entry for film is much higher because of the rigs and the processing. So there's not quite the same opportunity for indies to get involved. But I would level. say for animation, that's something different. Like being able to anim fact, like animating in within Unity or a game engine is actually going to give you much more flexibility. And the fact that the first time I've seen like the Rose and I is actually a VR film, but it's an animated VR film on Steam VR that you can download from Steam. It's not a game; it's an animation. And I think there's much more greater scope for indie filmmakers to make something in animation than there is Isn't in there a cool film. Kind of little animation thing on the cardboard when you, when you get the cardboard package. Oh, like, right, yeah. I forgot what it's called now, though. Windy Day. Windy, Windy Day. Day, Windy Day. So in many ways, the CG approach, even though CG in film is usually more expensive, is actually more accessible and probably where we're going to see more of the experimentation. But I want to take this a little bit further, because, yes, you're talking about film, but actually I think there's a wider subject, as I think Dave had um, hinted at, um, I mean, in particular AR. And the reason I'm, I'm particularly focused on AR is the number of studios, small studios I know, who are making a lot more money doing AR. Um, I, don't want to, I don't like the term serious games personally, but you know, kind of more business-focused applications that learn from games. 
too long, but yeah. Um, but do you, is, why aren't you guys, oh my God, you may be, but are you guys interested in that kind of stuff? We've done it. Is that good? Is that bad? Is that good lessons to learn? So I love the idea of risping people away into a virtual world. And it's a lot harder to do that in AR. AR, it's really good to get virtual objects into the real world and make them feel real and believable. But to take someone away is really hard. But from, from our perspective, AR, for entertainment, is, is great fun for under-12s. They love... You know, when we did one book, we all did one book. Yeah. You know, the, having dragons come alive in your living room. It's brilliant for that age group. But then when you're 18, 20, 25, you, you want to escape somewhere else. So from an entertainment perspective, I more interested in, in VR. I think AR will be huge and will probably ultimately be bigger because in terms of like work, communication, productivity, it, you, know, you, you don't necessarily want to be whisked away to another world. You just want to share something with somebody that's in a different place. I know people are so. using it to work out how to install boilers. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, mean, yeah, yeah. I think about that. You know. yeah, yeah. Um, so any more questions? There's uh, one over there. So if VR is now it's in, in its infancy, when do you guys project that it might be a stable commodity uh, in people's houses? In how many years do you think that the majority of the households might be able to have a, a VR device in, in the home place? I will I'll put my hat in the <laughs> ring and say three to five years. I actually feel like, you know what, this Christmas is going to be really big because the PlayStation VR device... Like, it's accessible in terms of price, in terms of actually being able to buy it from a shop. And everybody with a PlayStation 4, which is like over 40 million people at the moment, can actually use it, sit down, plug it in and start it working. And like, until we get that user flow of like cheaper devices and like just easy to set up and then nice, awesome gameplay fun, then yeah, it's going to be a while. I reckon it's going to be Christmas though. When, like, especially like, as smaller indie developers go for her like outgoings, like I'm sure, imagine we're going to be okay with 40 million people playing on the PS4 VR device. I think my own guess, because it is a guess, is probably a couple of years. It's going to be, it's going to take somebody to produce a good wireless device that can be standalone, because uh, at the moment it's very much enthusiasts, which is great because that's where this needs to start from. Somebody like maybe Samsung, HTC, Google, somebody in the mobile space is going to produce a standalone unit, and that is probably where it's going to be explode. Um, but until then, we're going to be getting ready for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a really common key point. Unfortunately, we're going to get we're going to get closed off. I sad to say, I've been I've been given my strict orders. Uh, I mean, I just chucked a little thing on that one. Um, I do think that there is an issue in terms of accessibility. I'm probably more on backing on the idea of the mobile side, but until there's a way for me to put it on my face conveniently and not have to have a bulky thing to carry with me, I think that's going to be limited. So on that, on that note, I'm going to thank you all for being here and also look out for the Guru uh, podcast. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks to Dave Ranyard and Katie Good. If you are interested in hearing more about VR, Tommy Palm delivered a creative keynote on his work as CEO and VR guru at Resolution Games. That's part of the Guru Live Games playlist on SoundCloud or find it at bafta.org forward slash guru.